0: Would you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. This morning we're looking at verses 15 to 31. John chapter 14, that's on page 1068 if you are using a pew Bible. Page 1068, John chapter 14. This morning we're looking at verses 15 to 31. Let me read those verses. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long the world will not see me anymore but you will see me because I live you will also will live on that day you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you whoever has my commands and obeys them he is the one who loves me he who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him then judas not judas iscariot said But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Back when I was in seminary many, many, many years ago now, my wife was uh, working in Boston, and she uh, worked at a company. It was located at Downtown Crossing, and she uh, was coming back from lunch on the red line with a couple of her coworkers. and as they're traveling back in, in the, uh, the, the subway, uh, you know, everyone just kind of minding their own business, this lady stands up while the car's going, and, and she says, excuse me, everyone, I have something to say. You know, you can just imagine this. Uh, so... You know, she says, I I want everyone here to know that you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And she went on to talk about Jesus a little bit, and then she sat down. Um, So they got back to the office, and one of my wife's co-workers, a guy named Dennis, you, you know, he said, what was that lady talking about? And then he asked, how can you have a personal relationship with Jesus if he's not here? And I thought, you know, that's a really good question. (laughs) Because usually when you have a personal relationship with someone, you're in person to some degree or another. Um, You you know, this is this phrase that we evangelical Christians often use. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. But, you know, what does that mean? Part of the reason I think we use that jargon, that we kind of have that uh, almost cliche that we use, is because we want to distinguish biblical Christianity which is very much a relationship with God, from just kind of empty religious observance, you know, thinking that, well, if I go to church and I keep a few rules and I observe a few rituals, that that's Christianity. And we want to say, no, no, it's much more than that. It's a relationship. Okay, fair enough. But what does that mean? Like, what are the dynamics of a relationship with Jesus? How does that work itself out on a regular basis? And even those of us who would consider ourselves people who have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're, you're like me and eh, maybe I'm not brave enough yet to just stand up on the red line and give a public address. But, but maybe you, you would say, but I think what that woman was saying was right. We need to have a personal relationship with, with God and with Jesus. Maybe even if you feel that way, let me ask you, is that how you would actually describe your Christian life in the last week? You know, if I look back at my Christian life in the last week or the last month, what I, and you said, Jeremy, what was it like for you? What would I say? It was like a personal relationship. That's how it was. I wonder if sometimes, even though I affirm that, the reality of my experience is something far more dry and ritualistic at times. As we come to John chapter 14, verses 15 to 31, uh, here we are again in the, the uh, what's often called the upper room discourse, where Jesus is at the Last Supper, he's giving final instructions to his disciples. And he's getting them ready for his departure. You know, this, this was kind of a crazy time for the disciples. Because for the last three years, they've had a personal relationship with Jesus. Like literally in person. They've walked with him. They've traveled with him. They've seen miracles. They've been with him in person. And now he's about to depart. And they're supposed to have a relationship with him in his absence. So what does that look like? So this Sunday and then the subsequent Sunday, we're going to just kind of hang out in these last verses a little bit and think about that relationship with Jesus that, that we can have and that the disciples were to have. And like any relationship, it's a two-way street. A, a, relation, a real relationship goes both ways. Husbands, have you heard your wife telling you this? You know, Yes? We've heard this you know it's got to go both ways we, we need to to re, uh, relate in both directions and so i want to think this sunday about one of those ways which is our relationship to jesus what we do to stay in a state of fellowship and communion with him what, what do we do as christians as we relate to the lord and then in a later sermon we'll think about his relationship to us and i think there's probably a lot of things we could say but the the, the thought I want to focus on is right here in verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. If we love Jesus, if we have a, a relationship with him, we will show it, we will demonstrate it, we will actualize and express that relationship, you know, in, in a number of ways, but primarily what he's talking about here is obedience to his word. He repeats it down in verse 21. He says the same thing. He just reverses the order. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And then he says it again as if that wasn't enough in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and will come to him and will make a home with him. Then we get the, the, the negation. Verse 24. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So so again and again in this passage he's trying to drive home, you know, this is the principle of repetition when you're interpreting the Bible and you see something repeated again and again in a short time that's usually a clue for kind of thick-headed people like me like, oh, I think God's trying to tell me something. He's repeating it. Uh, maybe I need to listen. So, a relationship with Jesus, a love relationship with him will show itself in obedience. We we don't We're not saved by our obedience, but we're saved for obedience to his word and to his law. Even look at what what he says in verse 31. Isn't this interesting? Down at the very end, Jesus is talking about his own relationship with the Father. As he's been away from the Father, Jesus has come down into the world. The Father is in heaven. What has Jesus' relationship with the Father been like in his own absence from the Father? Well, it's been one of loving obedience. Look at verse 31. The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So even that paradigm that Jesus has with the Father becomes our relationship with Him when He's absent from us. We love Him and we keep His commands. And so in Jesus' absence, that's how we relate to Him. We love Him and keep His commands. If Jesus was standing right here today, We would love him by keeping his commands. Because whether Jesus is here or not here, he's the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. As we studied last Sunday, he is God made visible. He is God in the flesh. And so to to have a real relationship with someone who's the king or have a real relationship with God, part of that relationship has to be obedience because that's who he is. And so this is how... This is how we, we, we show our love to the Lord. Now, obviously, there's other ways, too, prayer and, and, uh, and worship. And, but it really comes down to obedience, isn't it? I mean, prayer is even an act of obedience in many ways. And so this is the fundamental dynamic. If we love him, we'll keep his commands. We'll keep his word. We need to stop and kind of ponder this because there's always a danger of thinking that we can have a relationship with the Lord without obedience, thinking that it's possible to love the Lord without an obedience growing out of it. Uh, it, It's easy to to uncouple these two ideas, the source love and the the response obedience, and and to pull them apart and thinking that you can have one without the other. I think it's a particular danger for us today because when you think about love in our culture today. The way our society defines love, and kind of a, a postmodern American framework—you you know, what, what is love today? How, how would sort of the, a common conception of it work itself out? And I think you have to say that love, the way it's conceived today, is opposed to obedience. That that today pe- the way people think about love is that if you love, then that's the opposite of obedience or commitment or structure or obligation, or morality. That, that these are kind of opposite sorts of things. He, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And today we say, if you'll love me, you'll let me. You know, If you love me and I love you, the way people think about it today is it's very individualistic and it's very self-centered. So it's like this. If you love me, that means you won't judge me. If that you love me, that means you'll accept me just the way I am. If you love me, you'll affirm me 100%. And in fact, love means that that I let you be who you are and you let me be who I am and we don't impose anything on each other and we just affirm and accept each other all the way. That's how we think of love. Isn't that how people talk about love today? And so so if you were to say, well, actually, I think you're wrong and you shouldn't do that. It's like, oh, that's so judgmental. That's not loving. And, And now love and obligation or love and structure are opposed to each other they're they're seen as opposites in fact there's a slang term kids use this in school today there's a i don't know if you know the slang term but but they 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 call each other uh haters heard kids say that don't be a hater you're a hater right and and what do they mean it's usually when someone says oh you shouldn't do that that's not right and they go oh you're a hater so okay let's see so if i say that something is right or wrong that's hate So by implication, love must be what? Total affirmation of everything. So I just, whatever. Be free. I'll be free. As long as I'm expressing myself and fulfilling myself. And so love has kind of just become a mirror that we stare into at ourselves. And as long as you're helping me stare into the mirror, you must love me. So then to hear Jesus say, no, no, if you love me, you're going to do what I say. (laughs) Wow, that just kind of doesn't make sense in our world today. And this creeps into a, the church. This creeps into Christianity. The world is always creeping into the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what the culture is or what the distortion is. And you know, it's always shifting. The way the world was creeping into the kingdom of God was different 50 years ago from what it is today. And 50 years from now, it'll be a different avenue of attack. But it's always coming. It's always creeping in. And, and this is one of the places we see it creeping in. And when it comes into the church, it becomes a kind of Christianity that's very self-focused, that, that's very much about my own uh, feelings and, and feeling good about myself and wanting the church to kind of be a non-judgmental place where there's just lots of affirmation and that's about it. You know, Bonhoeffer, the, uh, the pastor and theologian, the guy who was martyred under Hitler um, in the middle of the last century, Bonhoeffer uh, wrote about this kind of Christianity that was love without obedience. He had a term for it. Remember his term? Cheap grace, that's what Bonhoeffer called it, cheap grace. Grace, yeah, we're saved by grace, but it's a different kind of grace. It's a cheapened grace that's like, you know, a free giveaway that really has no other obligations to it that's detached from any possible ramifications of obedience. It's love without obedience. It's Christianity without obligations or or anything to it. How do we get cheap grace? Where does that come from? It's a lot of sources. I think sometimes we can, we can lay the groundwork for cheap grace, even in how we speak about Christ to other people. You know, we, we want to be Christians who are sharing our faith. We want to tell other people about Jesus. Maybe we're not brave enough. You have to stand up on the red line. I don't know. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I'm doing that this week. Maybe I gave you an idea. I don't know. But, but, but when you have an opportunity to talk about Christ to others, how do we frame it? What what. How do we organize that? How do we explain it? And I think sometimes we actually can set the stage for cheap grace in others' lives even by the way we present Jesus. But let me, let me do this. Um, let me give you a cheap grace presentation of the gospel. You listen, and then see if you can find out what's missing. Because the thing about cheap grace is there's things that they're saying is, that it's true, it's just that it's leaving out key things. So here you go. This is a, here's a cheap grace presentation. Presentation of the gospel, you can tell me what's missing. Here's how it goes. God loves you. He loves you so much that he is desperate to have a relationship with you. And God would do anything to have a relationship with you. In fact, he did. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. And now if you want to have a relationship with him, you just need to ask Jesus to come into your heart and he'll fill the God-shaped vacuum within you and you will find peace, you will find hope and joy, not just Christmas happiness, but joy and eternal life. So what's missing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what I think what's missing. Well, since I made up the illustration, I, I know what I think. So a lot of things missing All right, here's, one, here's three things that are at least missing that I intentionally left out that God is a holy creator you know we talk about God's love he is his love beyond what we can imagine but he's also holy and so we got to remember that he's the creator and that means I owe him my obedience and my love I made my children they owe me obedience <laughs> to a relative degree God made me, I owe him obedience to an absolute degree. He's the king and the creator. My whole life should be pointed to him. Which leads to a second thing that I intentionally left out, which is, and I think I heard some of you whispering it, sin. That, that you know, the reason I don't have a relationship with God isn't just because you know, I haven't reached out to him. It's because I am in rebellion against him. I, I don't want him to be God. I don't want him to pose obligations on me. I want to be my own little God that makes up my own rules. You know, you know I, I like the cultural definition of love. And, and so that, that's that sinful rebellion within all of us. And sin leads to judgment. You know, what, what do you do with Benedict Arnold's? I'm a Benedict Arnold of creation. I turned my back on the guy who's done everything to to bless me as his creator, as my creator. And then to think Jesus died, not just died, but died for my sins, that Jesus was taking the traitor's punishment on the cross that I should be deserving. It's amazing. And then what about you know how we respond to the gospel? There's a third thing. So so let's say a person comes to the place where they're like, wow, I really would like to know Jesus. You know, I I really want to be saved. What do I do? And they ask you, what do I do? Please don't tell them you need to ask Jesus into your heart. This is not the biblical command. I mean, find that in the Bible for me. Hey, I want to believe in, I, want to, I must be saved. What must I do? Ask Jesus into your heart. It's not there. What does it say? It says, repent and believe the good news. So repentance, hmm, yeah. Repentance means saying, I'm wrong. My whole life was wrong. And now I'm repenting, and I realize that I need a Savior, and so I'm believing in Christ. That right there is fundamentally setting the groundwork for a trajectory toward obedience in Christ. Because I realize that following Him means I'm going to start following Him. It's not a perfect obedience, there's no Christian who obeys perfectly. You know, if you were to graph my growth and obedience as a Christian, you know, it wouldn't be like this. It's kind of like this. Dun, 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 dun. Whoop, had a bad week. Okay. <laughs> you know, so you're looking for over time as a Christian, maybe over five years or ten years, you're here and you started here. And so so it's a gradual growth in holiness with sometimes twists and turns and as we struggle along in the Christian faith. Following Jesus sometimes feels like two steps forward. One step back. But it's still forward. And it's growing in obedience. So. We, we need to press on into that. But, but when we don't tell people about a holy God. Or sin or repentance. And we just tell the other side of it. Which is true. Love. And he died for us. And you know what? He does live with us. So, so there's even some truth to that. Live inside of us. But. We set the groundwork for cheap grace, for love without obedience. And then when you're a, if you're a Christian who has love without obedience, if, if there's sort of persistent disobedience in your life, and then you're like, well, whatever, God loves me. Jesus died for me. I'm cool. It's good. You know, When I was five, I asked Jesus into my heart, so I'm all good. No matter what happens, I'm set from now on. Where's the obedience? Not that we're saved by obedience, but that it demonstrates the reality of our relationship with him. And when you have evangelism without repentance and you have love without obedience, you know, just one more kind of consequence of this is it eventually leads to Christians getting together and forming churches without commitment, forming congregations without accountability, where we see the church as more a place place, again, about meeting my needs and affirming me where I'm at as opposed to us being committed together in Christ. When we have cheap grace churches, when love is there without obedience in the church, you know the church becomes a kind of—I don't know—spiritual version of the Derby Street shops. You know, you know the Derby Street shops. If you've never been there, I would recommend waiting to go there till after Christmas. Unless you like fist fights, then that's cool. But um, it, it's tough. I mean, Chipotle is there, but I can't go because it's this time of year. It's killing me. So you can, I share that as a prayer request. Anyway. Um, <laughs> You know, Derby Street shops, you pull in, you park, and there's all these stores. Just so many. Some stores I never even see. And my wife sees them. She knows what they are. I can't even see the sign. Other stores I see. You know, I see Chipotle. I see REI, the Apple store. And I'm like, okay, that's the interest of me. That's the interest of me. I'm going to go into these specific stores and see if it's what I like. And if there's enough of what I like there, I'll keep coming back if it meets my needs based upon what I'm trying to consume. And I think sometimes we can look that way at the church, too. And we can say, okay, I'm really interested in music, I'm really interested in the uh, small group ministry and this, and if it's good, then I'll, I'll stick with it. If not, I, I'll go somewhere else. And, and I understand there's times in life when we're between congregations for various reasons and we're trying to find where God wants us. But I think sometimes we just keep that consumer mentality, which is ultimately a love without obedience kind of mentality. It's fit, fit my needs, fill my needs, and if my needs are met, I'll just go somewhere else because there's no sense of commitment or obligation to each other. But if the church isn't that, what is the church really supposed to be? I, I'd like to suggest that biblically, the church is really called to be a covenant community of disciples. That it's not so much a spiritual shopping mall as it is a covenant community of disciples. It's people who have come to believe in Christ and are trying to obey him, who then gather together in local congregations to like cheer each other on and encourage each other and sometimes hold each other accountable when it's appropriate to be like, let's keep following Jesus. That's really what it is. I mean, put a bookmark here in John and turn back to the Gospel of Matthew just real quick, just a very familiar verse, Matthew 28. It's on page 989. The Great Commission. More last words of Jesus as He sends His disciples out. He's about to go into heaven. He's sending His disciples out. This is a missions verse, right? Matthew 28, 16-20, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So there it is. He's the king. We owe him obedience. Here's his command. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There's the missions verse. Go to all nations and make disciples. Tell them about me. But what do you do when people want to become disciples? Baptizing them. Huh. So, so if we go out and tell people about Jesus, but we don't end up baptizing people, we're not fulfilling the great commission. That's part of it. That's part of how you make disciples. You know, what's baptism? It's when someone says, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. One of the commands Jesus gave is to be baptized, so we do that. And that's done by churches. And, and churches baptize people in, into Christ and then into the fellowship of a local church. And then it says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That happens in discipleship communities called churches. That's, that's the plan. So, you know, we haven't done the Great Commission. We haven't done missions if we just go around evangelizing. Missions is accomplished when people come to faith in Christ and are then baptized and congregated into churches where people learn to teach each other about how to grow in the faith. Because, you know, it's hard to follow Jesus. I need your help. You need my help. We need to teach each other to obey his commands and keep encouraging each other to obey his commands. So we do that. that that's uh, if you look in your bulletins, there's a little slip of paper in there. This is a, a church membership covenant we adopted it this this summer. Uh, churches down through the years have used covenants. It's a, a major New England tradition, going back to the very first uh, Christians who came here to New England from England. And uh, covenants have been part of part of our history and our heritage. And what covenants are is, is it's a gr- it's what a church says. This is what we agree. To commit ourselves to together and if you look at some of the things that are there look at the second paragraph of the covenant we will live together under the supreme authority of the bible and the gospel of jesus so if i'm a member of the church and you're a member of the church we're looking each other in the eyes saying we're going to live by the bible as best we can by god's help or uh, look at look at the paragraph that starts with by god's grace by god's grace we will walk together in love will care for each other, bear one another's burdens, and pray for each other. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. What is the one command he gives in John 14? Is love one another. How can I love you if I'm not with a you? I, I need to be in community. It's really easy to love Christians everywhere in an abstract sense. That's super easy. What's really hard for you is to live in community with me... And what I'm like, and to love me despite my foibles, week after week, month after month, year after year, that's hard, is is living in community with actual Christians in an actual church. And and so we covenant together. Or, you know, look at the paragraph under that. We will press on toward maturity and holiness and godliness, resisting sin and worldly lusts, and growing in Christ-like character through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We're going to keep... Pressing on toward holiness. So, so the Christian life really is meant to be a, a, a team sport. It's something we do. And teams are local congregations. And you, you join a congregation because you're loving Jesus. And you want to love him and obey him with others. And that's the plan that, that he set up. That's how, that's how it works. So we grow together in the Lord. But without love and obedience together, you get cheap grace gospels, cheap grace Christianity, Churches without commitment, congregations without accountability, spiritual shopping. Can I ask you three questions for application? Just questions you can ask yourself. Hopefully one of these questions will apply to you, maybe more than one. Here's the first question. Are you really a Christian? No? Are you really a Christian? How do you know? You know, Obedience is the evidence of being a Christian. I, I just always fear for myself and for others that, that we would think that we're Christians when we're not. And we would have a false, misplaced sense of a security and assurance b- because of something. We're like, well, of course, of course I'm a Christian. You know, I, I was baptized. I was confirmed in my church. I mean, wh- what else would I be? Like, well, uh, do, you, do you trust in Christ? Or is it being proven through obedience? Well, sure, I'm a Christian. When I was in VBS at age five, I asked Jesus into my heart. Of course, I'm a Christian. I said those words right, and and I prayed those prayers right. So if I said those words, then I'm in, right? Like, well, maybe. I hope so. But is there been a growing love and obedience over the years? Where, where is that? And I just I just want us to be sure of that. You know, I just want to say to all you anyone here as a kid. Hey, kids, junior hires, high schoolers, I just want to say to you guys, it's so important that you know Jesus yourself. Isn't it awesome that your parents know God and that your parents are bringing you here to church and you're learning stuff in Sunday school? It's so awesome that's happening, but don't let it stop there. Don't think that just because your parents know God that somehow you do too, you need to... Lay hold of Jesus yourself. You know, you've got to believe in Jesus. Your little heart has to repent of sin and believe in him. And you can do that. You don't have to wait to a certain age to do that. You can turn to Christ as well. So be, be, beware of false assurance. Make sure you're really a Christian. How do I know? Well, the proof's in the pudding. The, the evidence is in the fruit on the tree. And if there is a consistent lack of fruit over time, and there's not, and you know, not that we don't sin. We struggle with sins as Christians. Sometimes as Christians, we struggle with the same sin. But what I'm looking for, even a Christian who's struggling with sin, is, is there a fighting spirit? Is there a willingness to say, I'm going to keep looking to the Lord to keep persevering? And if I don't see any fighting spirit, I don't see any fruit, I'm like, brother, sister, I don't know why you think you're a Christian. I don't know. I'm not your judge, but I'm just asking you as a brother and sister in Christ, maybe, Where's the fruit? Where's the evidence? You've got to ask that of yourself. Second question. So first question was, are you really a Christian? Here's the second question. If you are a Christian, if you really do know the Lord, where might you grow closer to him through deeper obedience? Where in your life could you get to know him even more and get deeper with him through deeper obedience? Isn't that the cool thing about relationships? They never really reach an end point. Relationships just get deeper and deeper and deeper. They can get richer and richer. You know, you look at a couple that's been married 50 years, and and they've had a a happy marriage and and a a godly marriage, and they'll tell you there's been ups and downs and all that. But, you know, you've just seen them over 50 years get deeper. you, You can get tired of ideas. You can read a book and be like, yeah, I get the idea, and I put it down. But relationships, they just never run out. And that's how it is with the Lord. We get, you know, He's infinite. We can get deeper and deeper in our knowledge and communion with Him. But to get closer than you are now, it's going to mean obedience and pushing some things out of the way that are in the way. So what do you need to do in your life? Maybe, maybe it's something you're doing that you need to repent of and stop and really wage war against some behavior or some way you, something you do. Just attack that and be done with it. Or maybe it's not just getting rid of a sin. Maybe it's doing something that He's been calling you to do. Maybe he's been calling you to serve him some way, to pray. Just things that we know we should be doing as Christians. And the Lord is wooing you and, and reminding you. You know, sometimes God wants you to do something, and it's like a mosquito buzzing around you. God, go away, God. I just want to do my thing. And he just keeps buzzing around, buzzing, until finally you're like, fine. And, and then you start doing what he wants you to do. And boy, the fruit that comes out of that, the, the sense of fellowship with the Lord. Maybe it's words, the way you use your mouth, that you want to glorify God with your speech and you want to stop gossiping, griping, being negative, complaining, judging, swearing. And and you're like, I want my mouth to be filled with thanksgiving and blessings and encouragements and worship. Or maybe it's something deep in the heart. Perhaps it's prideful attitudes or unforgiveness. Oh, that's a huge one. If you want to get closer to the Lord as a Christian and you're holding grudges, it's not going to happen. You've got to forgive. Jesus said, if you want me to forgive you, if you, want, if, you know, you've got to forgive one another for me to forgive you. We've got to let go of the, the unforgiveness and love one another as he's commanded us. And ultimately, we just got to put it all on the table on a regular basis with God. I just find this is a recurring discipline in my own soul to put it on the table and be like, God... Whatever, wherever, whenever, I'm yours. Use me, take me, rebuke me, correct me. Whatever you have to do, I just want to be yours. To present myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. As it's often been quipped, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. So we got to keep coming back on the altar and laying it down before the Lord again and again. So are you really a Christian? Would you like to grow deeper through deeper obedience? Maybe that's the secret. Maybe you need to obey to experience more fellowship with the Lord. And then the third and last question, uh, are, are you a committed member of a local community of disciples? That's the third question. Are, are you, do you belong to a church? Have you intentionally stood up and said, I will commit myself to you, fellow members, to try to do this as best we can by God's grace. And then they go, oh, you're one who's doing that too. Okay, come in. Join the circle. Let's go. Let's encourage each other. Are you a committed member? Or, or have you bought into this kind of churchless, membershipless Christianity that, that is so weird and so unbiblical? You know, we need to be committed to a, a group of people in a congregation. Or if you are a member of a church, like I'm a member of a church, I'm here, am I really living this? I mean, what's the point of being a member if you're not even doing what? We're supposed to do. So maybe God is calling you as a member of the church to actually live out love and commitment and not just be on the sidelines in the periphery so that we can all grow more and more in obedience to the Lord. If we love him, we'll obey him. And so I would just encourage you to press on to a greater obedience in Christ. We're not saved by our obedience, but we're saved for obedience to live for him. And by the way, if I could just say just one other thought. This is a little caveat here. Make sure that if you start getting fired up about obedience, make sure that it's coming out of love. (laughs) Because it's super duper easy to strive for obedience motivated by things other than love. Think of all the reasons you can be obedient for all the motivations for obedience besides love. I mean, here's two Guilt. Guilt produces a lot of good behavior. Good behavior, doesn't it? Guilt can drive people to to live a certain way. Um, Two uh, weekends ago, I was up in Quincy at a swim meet for my son. And part of the way our swim team works is parents have to volunteer time. So I was volunteering some time trying to put in my sweat equity into the team. And uh, um, the the job I had was parking. So I was there at 6 a.m., and I was parking cars till about 8. It was freezing. Me and this other lady, I know nothing about parking cars. So I'm just, you know, got an orange vest. Yeah, sure, whatever, right there. And uh, so we we're chit-chatting. And so so it's supposed to go 6 to 8. And about 7.40, about 7.40, uh, the cars have pretty much stopped coming in. There's no place to put them anyway except to park illegally. I mean, I was telling people, you can park there, but if you get a ticket, it's not my fault. Like, I was telling people that. It was that bad. And, you know, where do you park in Quincy anyway? Those of you from Quincy, I don't know. It's a really, you know, narrow streets and things. So I, w- I was, like, trying to park cars. So it's about 7.40, and I just said to the lady, I go, do you want to bag it? I think, I think it's pretty much done. And she kind of goes, hmm. I was like, no, no pressure. I, I don't want to make you bag it if you don't want to. She goes, it's just, she goes, it's my Catholic guilt. <laughs> I wasn't raised Catholic. I've heard a lot about Catholic guilt. The thing is, though, Catholics don't have a monopoly on guilt. (laughs) There's Baptist guilt. There's Nazarene guilt. There's fundamentalist guilt. There's Jewish guilt. There's dragon mom guilt. There's so much guilt to go around from all these different sources. And and you can really be a, a very kind of respectable person fueled by guilt. And you might even look at a person who's... Keeping the rules based on guilt and say, wow, that's a really godly person. But the Lord's like, I don't know them because I don't have a relationship with you because it's not coming from love. It's guilt. Or another thing, just one more example of what can produce obedience besides love, is it can be produced by pride. I mean, that's a huge one, right? I do this and I do that and I don't do that. We can be just like the Pharisees in the Bible, these guys who are so full of themselves and their righteousness. Like, In Luke chapter 19, when the Pharisee prays, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men, evildoers, sinners, like this tax collector here. I I fast regularly and I give a tenth of all I get. You know, that that kind of, I don't ingest those substances and I don't say those words and I don't sleep around with those people. And so, mm -hmm, look at me, aren't I great? And that pride that we keep a few rules and we keep them really well and so we just get kind of full of ourselves. That's not a relationship with Jesus either. That's legalism. Because it's obedience coming out of pride. I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. You can always spot a Pharisee. Because there's one rule a Pharisee doesn't keep. And I know this because when I'm in a Pharisaic mode, this is a rule I don't keep. Here's one law Pharisees never keep. Love one another. It's always judgmental and harsh. There's always that edge to it. So we're not talking about a guilt-driven obedience. We're not talking about a pride-driven obedience or a perfectionism-driven obedience. We're talking about love-producing obedience. And how do you stay there? Brothers and sisters, it's the gospel. The gospel is the cure-all for your soul and for mine. The gospel is what saves me from obedience without love because the gospel reminds me of sin and the holiness of God and Jesus died for my sin. But the gospel also saves me from obedience without love, of of trying to keep the rules without love because, you know, it's it's not guilt. My guilt has been forgiven. And it's not pride because the gospel has laid me low and put all my hope in Christ. And so, The gospel is what keeps me full of love. When I think of what Jesus did for me, when I think that that my God died for me to save me, and as that truth just washes over me again and again like the ocean waves, you you just got to go down to the beach of the gospel and lay in the sand right at the place where the gospel waves break and just every day let those gospel waves break over you. Christ has died for you. Christ has died for you. And that is the only thing that can just pound the sin out of your soul. It's it's a thing that pounds anxiety out and just washes you again and again. Just let the gospel go deeper into you. And as you realize what Christ has done for you and how much he's loved you, you know, you'll want to obey, but not for guilt, not for pride, but for love because you love him. When we love him and that love is expressed through obedience, look what happens, verse 23. If anyone loves me, and back in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Get this. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See that word home? In Greek, that word that's translated home here only occurs one other place in the whole Bible. You know where? It's back at the beginning of chapter 14 when Jesus says, in my father's Home, house, same word. So Jesus is going to prepare a place of residence for me in heaven and yet if I will live in loving obedience to him in this life, his home will be with me now. And haven't you found it to be the case, brothers and sisters, that when those times in your life, when you're walking in loving obedience to the Lord, that those are the times when you have had the greatest sense of His presence and His love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know You. If there is a God and a God can be known, we want to know that God. And Jesus, we thank You that You came so that we could have a personal relationship with You. Lord Jesus, I pray, save us from cheap grace. Save us from cheap grace gospels. Save us from consumeristic congregationalism. Lord, save us from from just being indifferent to our sin. Help us to to have that fighting spirit given by the Holy Spirit. Thank You the Holy Spirit's a fighting spirit and that He fights against sin. Lord, help us to keep in step with that spirit and to keep waging the battle. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is mired down in their sin that they would repent and pick up the battle and take hold of the resources in God and in the church to fight. And God, I pray for for anyone here who thinks they are a Christian but actually is not a Christian. God, I pray that you would reveal that. I, I can't make that assessment, but Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. Help us all to test and examine ourselves and to look for fruit. And Lord, may our church be one where there is real obedience, growing obedience in you. Help us to really love each other, Lord. I just pray for more love, love for others. God, save us from our selfishness, save us from self-absorption. Fill us with love and holiness, we pray. In Christ's name we ask, amen.